This is the Buried and Born podcast. Today's episode is from our series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Wisdom and the Foolishness of the Cross. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to finish chapter 1 today. We have uh, the, the theme of this, the overall theme of the book is wisdom and the foolishness of the cross. And so it's, it's Paul has a, a thesis that he's making throughout this book, which is there are two types of wisdom. There is the wisdom of the world, or he'll call it natural wisdom, or the natural mind, of, or words of wisdom, or uh, the, the human mind, or the, the human being. Um, these are not necessarily tied directly to physical flesh. It just means what can be understood and known and comprehended by the, the, the human themselves. And then there is a second wisdom that is the wisdom that can no, be known only by the Holy Spirit, the one who um, is uh, the only one who can deliver to us true wisdom and knowledge of uh, Jesus Christ. And Paul has established this church here at Corinth. And um, he's he is he is running uh, at uh, he's burning at both ends of the candle because he feels as though uh, Christ is coming back at any moment, and so his obligation is to travel throughout the world to establish these communities of people. We said the four things last week. They are people that have been converted by God's grace. They have seen manifestations of the Spirit. They have the gifts of the Spirit. And they are awaiting the, the coming, the arrival, the revealing of Jesus to judge the earth. Uh, and they are participating with one another in uh, communion with Jesus Christ. They are living Christ's life uh, through the activities of the church. And that's what he establishes is a, the, the basic model of a church, those four things. And so we said this is what the, let's see if this works, this is what the breakdown of the book is. We've got the first four chapters are the contradictions and the paradoxes that he has uh, with the Corinthians on what wisdom even means. And then we have the chapters 5 through 10. These are going to be divisions that are among them. He says they're dominated by sin, and that's why they have these divisions. And then he's going to tell them the opposite. Here's how to have order and unity, and he gives them some things that are they're going to build them up. Both of those chapters are divided by the statement that the Corinthians have made to him in a writing that said, all things are lawful for me. Uh, they believe that they've received wisdom now of the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of that wisdom is for their own personal betterment. And so they then look at things like the law and the constructs of, of uh, things maybe that Paul taught and said, all things are lawful for me. I'm, everything is maybe in our modern vernacular. Everything's under the blood. I've been forgiven, so don't worry about it. And Paul says, rather than think of it as, I'm fine, all things are lawful for me, or however we want to put that in our, in our language, or, you know, I'm my own person, I'm, I'm my own me. Rather than that individualist attitude, he says, I'd rather that you be imitators of me. And Paul sees himself as someone who is going to the cross for his church. And then we're going to see the culmination of the whole book in chapter 15. This is where the Holy Spirit is doing a project. And then we'll see Paul has a, a project that he's doing for the saints in chapter 16. Uh, so it'll all build up to that. But let's go ahead and jump in today. Uh, oh, this this is what I want you to see this. In the next couple of weeks, we'll see through chapters 2, 3, and 4 here. The Corinthians are boasting in three things. They're boasting in their status. They're boasting in their association. And they're boasting in their accomplishment or their knowledge. Their, their, uh, their status is, is who they are. Their association is which clique they're in or which club they're in or who they're followers of. 
and then their accomplishments is their knowledge. They they are they are. Have you ever seen the passages? You ever seen the passages where Paul talks and, and Corinthians has this, where Paul talks about there'll be there being a weaker person. Um, so he'll say uh, the weaker person doesn't want to eat meat offered to idols, but you do want it. So he doesn't mean that the person is necessarily weaker. And it's probably that he's being a little sarcastic, calling the person weaker. He doesn't see them as weaker. Um, but what he's saying, that, that's, that's what they're saying. So someone will come across and say, look, I understand that the, the, all the gods are not really gods. They're just demons. And Jesus has beat the demons. So I don't need to live up to any sort of rules that you have. Because some of the people would say, oh, I don't want to eat meat that's offered to these other gods. Because to that, in that culture, it would have been that means I'm associating with that god. And the Corinthians would say, well, we have knowledge. We have, we've, we've accomplished a higher knowledge. We understand that that's not true. And then what they're doing is they're hurting their brothers and sisters because they see themselves as a higher knowledge. And I'll give you an example today that'll probably make you mad at me, but I want to just give you an example that's going to help you understand this uh, to see what Paul is dealing with. So that's what we've got. He is going to cut them off, though, and chapter 2 explain to them why we should not be boasting in any of these things we should be boasting rather in the Lord. So that's what we're building up. So we read the first nine chapters. So let's, uh, verses, so let's read beginning in chapter 10 today. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. There it is again, where he's trying to draw them together. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, he's going to make appeal to them here. All of you agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anybody else, anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I think that's what... Oh yeah, oh, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Okay. Uh, Paul has a three-part appeal here. The first thing that he says is, I want you all to agree. Now... That's a difficult thing to say to a group of people, right? So he doesn't mean on the minutia. Paul is actually, through a lot of his books, is perfectly fine with people not agreeing on some of the minor things. For example, the meat offered to idols. He's fine with them not agreeing. So uh, when he says to agree, we have to understand what he means by that. He wants them to agree on this verse 18, that the word of the cross is folly to them who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is power of God. The word of the cross is the thing that Paul wants everyone to agree on, what the cross is saying, what the purpose of the cross is. To the Corinthian mind, the cross and the Holy Spirit was for them a portal to individual salvation, individual enlightenment, and individual greatness. Everything about them was, was individualistic. Even in their cliques, it was for the sake of themselves advancing in their status or being known in their status. Now, we don't have the same thing that they had at that time, but we can still do that based on this is where someone went to school or this is where this is who. And he talks about the baptisms here. Did you know that I was baptized by the great so and so or that I come from this tradition or I come from that tradition? And so the Corinthians would align themselves with things that they thought would be uh, 
about themselves that would make them even better. And so Paul says, I want you, number one, to agree. Agree on the cross. That's the premise of what we're doing. And again, it's such a, because we say that so often, you really have to think about whether or not your view of everything we're doing here is in light of the cross of Jesus. Because if I were to just say, hey, you know, what's the center of what we do? You would default to saying, oh, it's Jesus. But when we think about what Jesus did and what Jesus said, that's when things start to get a little bit iffy, right? When Jesus says things like turning the other cheek or going the extra mile or um, uh, not breaking our contracts and, and, and not even being angry or being willing to cut off our own hands or cut out, cut out our eyes if we're sinning to remove that offense, that's when we start to get a little bit away from, well, I didn't know, I, that's not what I meant by, yes, Jesus is the center of all things. And so Paul says, I want you to agree. John, when he talks about Jesus in the book of Revelation, he says that he beholds him and he sees him as a lamb that was slain. So John perceives Jesus even in his victory, even in that moment of revelation, that, that apocalypse, that revealing of Jesus, he still sees him from that perspective of that's a lamb that was slain. And so he still sees him. His strength is his weakness, and his weakness is his strength. So never get away from the idea that the weakness of Christ, the foolishness of Christ on the cross is actually the beauty that our world has. All of humanity's suffering exists in the cross. All of humanity's faults and failures, all of humanity's downfall, uh, all of humanity's suffering is in the cross, and the cross is where humanity exists right now. So he says that, number one, I want you all to agree. Number two, he says, I want there to be no divisions among you. Now, the division is not simply a, a disagreement, but the division is, an, is actually not participating with one another and separating from one another. We have the mind of Christ, meaning when the Spirit dwells within us, we have that mind, and so we should act on that mind. And Paul wants them to go, you're actually not acting on that mind because the way you're, you're acting is weird. So look at verse... Um, uh, 11 here. So he gives them those three things. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Okay, so if I'm Chloe, I'd have been frustrated right here because uh, you, you, don't, you don't rat out people. Like You could have totally said that without saying Chloe, by the way. I was telling you that in confidence. But he said, Chloe's people have told me that there is quarreling among you. Um, these are the factions, and he's going to say this through 12 through 16, the factions. First of all, he mentions Apollos. So Apollos was an eloquent speaker, and he likely appealed to their desire for respectable leadership. He had a lot of deep understanding. So he came along, and they, they said, well, you know, Paul is definitely speaks weakly, and he's, every time we look at him, he's got bruises all over him because he's been beaten. And Apollos, man, Apollos probably was this very tall attractive, great speaker. He was, he was, he reminded them of the Greek gods probably is who Apollos was. And so that's the first guy. Then he mentions Peter and we don't really know why, because it doesn't seem like there's ever a time Peter went to Corinth. There's, there's nothing that leads us to believe that. So maybe Paul is just adding Peter there for the sake of rhetoric. Um, and then he uses, uh, his own name, I'm of Paul. We know who he is, but then he says this and he says, I am of Christ. So it would be weird to think that a church would have some people in the church that would say, I'm of Christ, and other people not say that. Just, just the fact that Christ is one of the people in the divisions, it's weird, because who in a church 
doesn't consider them of Christ. So it's likely that they began to lower Jesus into the category of one of many speakers who were wisdom teachers. And so they had come together, and, and we, see this, we see this a lot today, where someone will say, yeah, Jesus was a, uh, a wonderful example in his time, and even the story of the cross tells us so much about humanity, uh, and, and he could teach us so many things, but that's not participating with and knowing Christ. That is not receiving the grace of Christ. And so it's likely that the Corinthians start to look at Jesus, and again, they want to use him to extract from him the good ideas that he came up with but not actually know him, serve him, and follow him. Because if you look at Jesus as a wisdom speaker, the Beatitudes are really great. I mean, they're profound. But when you look at Jesus as one going to a cross, the cross is to, to human flesh. It is ugly. The, the cross has become, uh, you know, if you watch, it's, it's, we're getting into September, October here, you watch a horror movie, somebody's going to fight some demon with a cross, right? Because it's considered a holy object. Not at this time. The cross is the, the, the sign of the Roman Empire that can do to you whatsoever it pleases. And a person that hangs on a cross is an embarrassment, is a failure. It shows that Caesar is still Lord and he's the king of kings and he's over all the earth. So the cross is not a beautiful thing to them. And Paul says, I see that you like Christ, but you like Christ for some of the great things that you think he said, but you don't like Christ for his cross. So he lists off these people. Paul may have used these names just for the sake of argument. There were probably some lesser known names in the church. There were probably some wealthy people who had some importance in the city and developed these, these divisions. So during this time, there was something called the patronage system. Patronage system, we don't have this nowadays, but the patronage system basically meant this. In a room this size, let's say that there were only two really successful people. And let's say that, uh, let's say I was one of them, right? Uh, and let's say that Ethan was the other one. And uh, I come from a noble background, and I have a family that's noble background, and so does Ethan. Ethan uh, Ethan's family uh, comes from something in trade, and my family comes from something in, I don't know, we owned a lot of ships for fishing, right? So in that patronage system, you all would basically be stuck in wherever you were stuck in your class. There's no way to raise classes. There's no upward mobility. You're either noble-born or you're not. So the best way to make a success of yourself is to align yourself with somebody who already is nobility or wealth, and they, you would become their patron. So in essence, you would provide your services, and they, almost like the mafia, would provide protection for you or a name for you. So if you were going around in town and you needed any sort of recommendation, if you needed some sort of identification, if you needed some sort of credentials, you would be able to say, oh, I am, I am, I am of Jeremy. And they, oh, well, that's the shipping magnate, right? He's, he's the guy that, okay, well, if you're part of that. And they would form these, essentially, like political parties. Now think about it today. Nobody in a third party can win. Why? Because there's these two massive political parties that have the power. So if somebody wants to win an election, you're going to have to align yourself with one of these parties in a patronage system. The party gives me money. I can run. I can run. And what do I say? I have the R by my name. I have the D by my name. And now I can have uh, credentials as I'm running. That's what the people started to do. So they were aligning with probably some people in the church that are not named here. And Paul throws out Peter, uh, Apollos, Paul, Jesus, for the sake of the argument. But there was probably a handful of nobility, because later on he's going to say, not many of you are noble birth. There's a handful of people that are noble, and they start aligning themselves with them to say, oh, I'm in Ethan's group, and, and he's going to protect me. And so that's the system that they had. 
And they apparently were using baptism as their system, right? Well, did you know that I was baptized by, it was like a rite of passage. And people were probably baptizing, they probably had, instead of the pastors and the deacons baptizing people, they probably elected to have the nobility start to, elect, to, to baptize people. And the nobility was going off into areas and coming back to the church on Sunday during the Lord's Supper and be like, uh, these are the seven people that I baptized into my patronage system this past week. And so now they're part of my group, which is going to cause problems later on in like the Lord's Supper because the rich people are providing food for their groups of people. And this guy is providing groups. And then some guy walks in and says, well, I just believed in Jesus a couple weeks ago and I have nobody. And he would come to the Lord's Supper and have nothing to eat. And so Paul has a problem with that. So they're, they're divided amongst themselves. That's, that's what Paul is, is getting at here because of this patronage system. So look at um, verse 17. Oh, by the way, just as an aside, Paul says, I did not come to baptize but to preach the gospel. This is, this is not putting down baptism. This is baptism as they saw it. And he's saying it almost like, thank God that baptism is not the thing that I was coming to do. I was coming to preach the gospel to you because you've taken baptism and made it a whole new weird thing. But he's not saying that baptism is not important. He, he's, he still thinks you should baptize people. So verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In, ver, in chapter two, he's going to tell us that he doesn't come with speech or, or lofty speech or wisdom, but he comes with the word of the cross. So this is the centerpiece of the book right here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. When the world looks at the cross, when the world sees what the cross represents and what the cross calls us to do, the world looks at that and says, that is folly. It is folly to be weak. It is folly to be merciful. It is folly to forgive. It is folly to not be strong. And Paul says, there's another wisdom that says, but actually to be weak is to be strong, to have mercy, to have forgiveness, is to be uh, strong and wise. To be humble is actually powerful. To be meek is actually the ones who inherit the earth. And the, the Corinthians are between two spots here where Paul is trying to tell them that merciful, forgiveness, meekness, humility, self-sacrifice is good and powerful and wise. And the world system says, actually, it's not. And that's where the two, that's where the church is right now. So if we move on to this next passage here, uh, here we go. Uh, look at verse 20. Let's begin in verse 20 here. Let me read this to you before I do this. I'm doing terrible with my notes today. I apologize. Uh, let me just read this so we get a, a quick understanding. Words of eloquence versus the words of the cross. That's what, that's what Paul has here. So the wisdom of the world was power, prestige, upward mobility, status, transcendence, self-promotion, personal profit. Wisdom was a secret thing that would exalt the individual to higher levels because they sought this. Their care for one another dropped and their willingness to satisfy all their own desires led them to sin. We must be clear that at this time there was no prevailing belief in equality or charity. Christianity was what made that mainstream. Paul's going to warn them that their actions are going to corrupt the church and harm the saints and work directly against what the Spirit is trying to build. In fact, Paul says that what the Spirit is doing and what Corinth is doing are in direct opposition, and the Spirit would destroy it to make room for his new creation. Remember when Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon or God and money or God and wealth. You can't. It's, it's, it's not that he's saying, hey, don't do that. He's saying you just can't, right? It, it's, it's, it's not possible to attempt to serve God and attempt to build your own wealth uh, with, with ambition and pride and greed. Does that make sense? 
sometimes when we talk about money, I think people think that, that that means every single person has to be poor or else they're not right with God. That's that's not what he's saying. But you can't try to do two things. It, you actually cannot operate trying to serve God and over here trying to serve the system, trying to serve mammon. It just it, They don't go together. And when you try to marry it, which Corinth did, and I don't even have to make any comments. The pastor preached it last Sunday. When you try to marry these things and make them fit together, when you make mammon, when you make the political system, when you make the world system try to marry Christ, neither of them, neither of them operate. And so that's what Paul says. He says, but the wisdom of the cross is completely different. The wisdom of the cross is self-sacrifice. So Paul's going to do, he's going to divide himself right here. So right now he says, the cross is foolishness and it's dumb and you guys are wise. And then he says that, that, that Jesus dies on the cross right here in verse, verse 18. And he's going to now flip it over and he's going to reverse it and say, everything you guys are doing is dumb and Jesus is wise. So let's read uh, beginning in verse uh, 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He's actually calling them. This is a rhetorical. If, if you were out in the amphitheaters, this is a rhetorical. He would stand up and say, whoever is opposing me, come forward. Make your, make your argument to me right now. Where are the philosophers? Come say it right now. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Notice, you guys are wise. God is folly. That's how he's phrasing it at first. For the Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. Stop right there. When he says the Jews look for a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, remember all the times that Jesus would do something and they would say, show us a sign. What they were asking for was a symbol of power. Show us power. Show us strength, right? Put us on the Straight Talk Express. And Jesus' response was always, the only sign that I'll give you is by me getting killed. Remember, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. The other time they asked him, he said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. What was Jonah? Guy got swallowed by a fish, right? The only sign of strength I'm willing to show you is weakness. That's what Jesus kept saying. So the Jews were looking for a shine of strength and the Greeks were looking for wisdom, eloquence. And Paul says, Christ in his cross has embarrassed both of you. He's put you all to shame because God in his strength had said, what is the most wise thing I could do? What is the most beautiful thing I can do? And he puts the cross in front of us. Keep reading. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Right here he flips it. So rather than thinking through, he's thinking through the Corinthian mind. Yeah, God is weak and foolish and, and unwise. The moment he brings the cross into his season, actually God is wisdom and power and strength to those who desire it. Now he's flipping it, the argument on them. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is a sentence that we do not believe at our cores. If we did, we would look a lot different. Me too. Not, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking to me. If I really believe that the weakness of God was stronger than my need to get revenge, my need to be right, my need to excel, my need to have, then we could live the way Paul was trying to say. Paul says, anything you do where you make it look like the cross is stronger than whatever the social media, the news, the world, the cross is always more strong and better than those things. He said, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise. 
according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. Remember, he's like, there's not a lot of you that are really great. There's not a lot of you that come from the Hamptons. There's not a lot of you that had family that, you know, that are in the royal family. You're all pretty much nobodies. And he says, that's a good thing. You have an advantage. If you're a nobody, if everything you've touched has failed, he says, you're already at an advantage because you could just step into where God is trying to call you. God has to spend all this extra time humbling the strong and you're already humble and lowly. So just stay there. Stop trying to climb the ladder. Stop trying to become influential. Stop trying to become, I need to transcend. And he said, you really just need to be humble and poor and that's fine. Poor in spirit. It's okay to be there because God has not called you from that place. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Remember this, because this is so powerful. When you think that God loves you and it seems too absurd, when you think that God has chosen you to show the world his wisdom and his love, and you think that's so absurd and wrong. That sentence right there. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Like, sometimes I, I look around at, at the world and I go, we're not winning, right? It's just, it doesn't feel like that. We're not winning. And what Paul says here is, you so are. Our weakness the fact that we don't look like, man, we don't have a system put it all together and we're just, you know, we're the more, most powerful ones and we control the narrative. Paul says, exactly. Christ is using what is foolish to shame the wise. You're telling me a bunch of yahoos out in the middle of a cornfield in Manuka have all the answers to life and death and the future and grace and peace and success and eternal life? Yes. That's the dumbest thing you can tell me. Why? Because the center of wisdom is Manhattan, is Washington, D.C. It's the Ivy League schools. That's what the Corinthians believed. And Paul said, actually, it's not. It's a bunch of yahoos who believe in the cross. You see? When we realize that the cross is the most beautiful thing, it will change how we perceive the world. When we're to, let me say this and I'll let you go. Temptation is always the idea that we lack something, right? Every time you're tempted, it is because the temptation is coming to you saying, you're missing something, you need this, you're short of this, right? So a temptation, you, you are, you're happily married, and the temptation comes along and says, there, to, to, to a man, you're missing out on so many beautiful women, right? That's what the temptation says, you're lacking, you're missing. If we take the cross and insert the cross there and the cross becomes big and beautiful, to die is beautiful, to sacrifice is beautiful, to suffer that another would live is beautiful, and then you run your marriage through that, now the temptation lacks. Ooh, why would I do that when I can love? You see? When the cross becomes the most beautiful thing to us, not simply Christ on the cross, but Christ with us on the cross and us with Christ on the cross. Paul will say, I am making up for what is lacking in Christ's crucifixion. Not that Christ is lacking, but I am. I'm looking more and more like the cross. When that becomes beautiful to us, temptation is the thing that begins to lack. Temptation is the thing that begins to suffer. So is the cross the height of beauty? The wisdom of the world says, I'm going to get mine and the cross always says, you can have mine. There's the difference. 
And so where do we end up going in this? Do we end up leaning toward the world? Oh, you know, I have to, do we get defensive of that? Here's the example I said was going to make you mad. Okay, caveat. I, I am not objecting. To, I'm, I'm, oh, oh. All right, fine. I'm just going to do it. Okay. I'm not objecting to anybody's Second Amendment right. Start there. I went to a restaurant last week. A guy walked into a restaurant, right? I have to assume that by what he was wearing on his shirt, he also had a weapon on him. But his shirt said, like big, said, I'm an American. I have a right to bear arms. I don't need your opinion. And I thought, my brother in Christ, I'm just trying to have a burger. Now, this is for the use of uh, illustration whatsoever. I don't know the man's heart. He could be the kindest guy and his like granddaughter gave him that shirt and he thought it was cool, whatever. I don't care. But let's say his heart was the way his shirt described him. I'm an American. That's my association. I have a Second Amendment right. I know my rights, my knowledge, my boasting in my, in my... And I don't need you boasting in my status. Now, I'm using it as an illustration. If you have that shirt, please forgive me and don't be mad. Because I'm sure, as I said, I'm sure he doesn't actually mean it that angrily. But I'm just using it. I've said it three times now. <laughs> what I mean, though, is that shirt doesn't say anywhere on it, let me die on the cross for you. I'm not expecting you to wear a shirt that says, let me die on the cross for you, right? But if that is what's in our heart, this is who I am, this is what I know, and I don't need your opinion. That is not the cross of Jesus Christ coming out of us. It's not. And that's what Paul says to put aside. We think my association, my status, and my rights are the most important thing to me. And Paul says, do not boast in those things, but he says here in our last verse, um, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boast, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Corinth, if you think you're awesome, boast in the cross. Live the cross. Be the cross. Because whatever you're chasing is foolishness, and the cross is what's wisdom. And now that Paul has said that, he's going to carry on and say, let me tell you what the Spirit is trying to do through a life that looks like the cross. And then he's going to go into our divisions and say, here's all the areas where you don't look like the cross. All right, let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Buried and Born podcast. We hope you'll continue with us through our series on 1 Corinthians. You can download notes for this series and others at buriedandborn.substack.com.